0: Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. I'd like to start this morning with a little bit of um, word association. And uh, it doesn't have to be just one word, but just kind of what images come to your mind or or what things do you think of or what what kind of pops into your head um, when you hear the word Starbucks? Coffee? That's it? you got to speak loud because I can't hear, you know? What's that? All right. How about, like, everywhere? You know, that's, that's what comes to my mind. Uh, okay, let's try another one. How about, um, what comes to your mind when you hear Nordstrom? Spending. Shopping. Expensive. Okay. Um, how about um, Disneyland. That one got a really good response. Fun, happy, happiest place on the earth, okay? Um, Home Depot. <laughs> no service. <laughs> you know, it's funny because um, every, every company wants a brand, and they want when people hear their brand name to have good thoughts pop into their head, uh, to be thinking, oh, yeah, I want to go there. I want to do something there. I want to be, be there. Um, and, and whether you like it or not, and whether they're positive or not, every time you hear a brand name, every time you hear the name of a, of a, business, you get some kind of a reaction. And typically the reaction that you get, whether it's emotional or just something that pops in your brain, typically it's because of personal experience. It's whatever experience you have had in that place, in that place of business. Um, that, that's kind of what pops into your head. A couple of years ago, uh, George Barna and associates uh, were commissioned to do a study. And, and they talked to and asked people who were not in the church, who were not Christians, who didn't consider themselves believers, who were people on the outside, um, how they responded to the word Christian. And some of the top responses, hypocritical, judgmental, superiority complex... <laughs> And we might think you know, we don't want to hear that or we might, li- might not like it or we might think you know that's really being unfair or, or it's just a cop out because they really don't want to come to grips with their own stuff. The truth of the matter is a large, large majority of people who are outside the church, not us who are inside, maybe some on the inside too, I don't know. But those outside the church, their perception of Christianity, of church, is hypocritical judgmental, people who think they're better than me. And particularly, particularly in the age group of 18 to 35. It was like in the 80 percentile had those kinds of responses. And the saddest part of that, the saddest part of that all is those are the exact opposites of Jesus' message. They are the exact opposites of what Jesus preached, how Jesus lived, how he interacted with people, the way he got involved in, in, this, in this culture, in this society, in this earth. They are the exact opposite. Something is getting lost in the translation. Jesus, the last time he was with his disciples, gave to him the, then these words. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's you. And now it's us. It's you. It's me. We're it. We are it. It is up to us to share This message of Jesus and to try and clarify all of the confusion. And by the way, we know now that that is an uphill struggle. Because we got to work really, really hard on doing a lot of the stuff that has been done. And Jesus said, it's up to you. If this message is going to get out, it's up to you. And he says, you start with those who are closest to you. He said to him, start here in Jerusalem. Start here with the people that you know. And we talked a little bit about that last week. Just conversing with the people that you know and helping them see Jesus. And then he said, beyond Jerusalem, now you don't just stay within your own little tight circle of friends. You get out beyond that. In Judea. Now Judea is a surrounding countryside. For you as an individual, that would be some people on the outer circles of your relationships. Acquaintances, but people that you don't really know. They're just kind of people that you interact with maybe on a daily basis, but you never developed real relationships with them for us as a church it's anyone who's looking at us from the outside it's the millions of people who live in the san francisco bay area it's the thousands of people that live in contra costa solano counties that's our vicinity It is the hundreds and thousands of people who drive up and down 680 every day and have no idea what we're about. If they're ever going to find out, it's up to you. It's up to me. We have a message of hope, of life, of meaning. We have a message of mercy, of grace, of restoration. How are we going to get that message out? How are we going to do that? Because he said, it's you. How are we going to do that? How are we going to help people better see Jesus? Because, see, I've got a fundamental belief. I believe I believe most people, if not all people, really do want a connection with God. They really do want to have a relationship with their Heavenly Father. I believe that. The trouble is the church is not doing a very good job of helping them find him. That we, in fact, are getting in the way And causing them to look at things they shouldn't be seeing when they think about Christian and when they think about Jesus. And I just want to say, by the way, if you are here this morning, and maybe this is your first or second time, or maybe you've been coming a while, but you would consider yourself, you know, I'm not there yet. I'm not a believer. I'm just kind of checking it out. And maybe that's been your perception of Christianity. Can I just, from the bottom of my heart, apologize for all of us? I'm sorry. We have not done a very good job of showing you Jesus. And it is the vision and the mission of this church from day one that we would give ourselves to being better at helping people see Jesus. That we would try and undo whatever those stereotypes and perceptions are. That we would do our very, very best to be authentic. and and relatable and gracious and merciful. That's at the heart of who we are as a church. How are we going to do this? Well, it's going to require changes, and the changes are going to have to start in the hearts of us Christians. Jesus told many stories in his ministry on this earth, and um, they're called parables, which just kind of comes from the idea that he told a story to kind of parallel a real-life application. And, and many of these stories, were just they were really understandable, knowledgeable, you know, relatable stories. But he was trying to present kingdom truths. And in Luke chapter 15, he actually told three of these stories back to back to back. And, and the first one is about a lost sheep and a, and a shepherd who has 100 sheep. And, and one of them is missing. And he launches an all-out search. And when he finds the sheep, he throws a party. And then there's one about, uh, about a widow who has five coins but has lost one of them. She turns the house upside down, a big search to find, and she finds a coin and she throws a party. And then maybe one of the most well-known of all of Jesus' stories told a story about a lost son who, you probably know it as the prodigal son, who went to his father and said, give me my inheritance now. And he took that and he went off into a far country and blew it all and came to himself and realized, I need to go home. And he is welcomed by his father. His father runs out to meet him. He he hugs him. He kisses him. He 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 takes out the best robe and puts it on him. He brings the, the signet family ring on, puts it on his finger, all of these things. And he is. And it's a wonderful story about the father's heart welcoming a lost son back into the family. But there's a second half to that story that we don't talk about very much. And it's really about another lost person. And we're going to pick up the story in Luke chapter 15, verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard the music and the dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked him, what was going on? Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father Went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, "Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even one a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill a fattened calf for him." My son, the father said, "You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had." to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. It's a powerful story. And it's spoken to those who would consider themselves followers of God. It is a story for you and for me because if we are if we are going to clearly get this message out, if we are going to truly be able to help people see Jesus, then some changes need to take place, and they need to start with us, and a number of them that we're going to have to take on and be serious about. One of them, I think, is this. We just need to quit criticizing people's faults and start relating to them and acting in humility. I just, the Simpsons, it's one of my favorite programs, I know, there's some of you say, oh, you know. Okay, but th- there's a one character, um, the Simpsons' next-door neighbor, his name is Ned Flanders, and there's one episode where um, Ned has been gone, and he comes back, and Homer sees him, and, and Homer says, so, Ned, I haven't seen you in a while. Where have you been? And Ned says, we've been off to Christian camp to learn how to be more judgmental. <laughs> and that is a perception. And it is a widespread perception. And too often it comes because we're perpetuating it. Too often, way too often, we are too focused on people's faults. Way too often we are too focused on their behaviors. And fault finding only produces barriers. Look at this story. The, The older brother hears the sound of celebration. And he wants to find out what's going on. And he asks one of the servants, and he says... Your brother has come home, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother, his reaction, he became angry and refused to go in. I'm not going to dignify this party by my presence. He got angry angry about it, irate, indignant. How could he throw a party for him? When after all he's done, after all I've done. And that's what happens. We start comparing. And and then we become unwilling to just associate with people. Just to make friends with people. And barriers get built by this comparing that we do. Because here's what happens. Here's what I find in my own self. When I try to do right. And when I try to do something good. Immediately, I become aware of how good I am being. And shortly after that, I become very much aware of all the others around me who are not. And I compare. John Ortberg says one of the hardest things in the world is to stop being the prodigal son without turning into the older brother. And that is so true. That is so true. In fact, in that study that, that Barna did, um, some of the other things that they did was they asked believers, they asked Christians, um, what is the main focus of, of your, um, what is a priority for you as a Christ follower? What is the main focus for you as a follower of Jesus Christ? And you know what some of the answers were? They were all about behavior. They were all about, I try to be good. I try to do what is right. I try to not sin. It was all focused on behavior. And that's the trouble. You start focusing on behavior on either side and you invite comparison. And when you get into comparison, you're heading down the wrong road. Because you can do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. The brother's words betray what's really going on in his heart. All these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Now, he might be overreaching here a little bit. You know, never disobeyed your orders. Slaving for you, never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. It's betraying his heart. See, he thought it was all about location. He thought it was all about staying home. He thought it was all about staying nearby. He thought it was about location, but it was really about the heart. And he left his father without ever leaving the farm. And it shows in his reaction because he finds fault with his brother. Now he finds fault with his father. Do you notice that? He's doing all this comparing thing and and he's found all kinds of faults with his brother. And because he's found faults with his brother, now he's got to find fault with his father because his father is welcoming him home. And he's left the father without ever leaving the farm. And he became a slave to behavior. In fact, it's the very words that he uses. All these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed. That's how he has seen all of his relationship with his dad. I'm slaving for you. I'm being the good son. I'm doing my best. I'm working my hardest. I'm trying not to do the bad things. Trying to do all the good things. And he thought that was what it was all about. And he chose to accept slavery instead of staying as a son. (laughs) He was a son. He was an heir. He was open to and had the privilege of a relationship with his dad every day of the week, 24-7, seven days a week, four weeks a month, 12 weeks a year. He had all of that. And he chose to put that aside so he could slave. That makes no sense to me. But we do it all the time. Whenever we get focused on behaviors, we lose relationship. And Jesus said the true test, the true test of spiritual maturity is how well you love. Not how much you know, not how much you do, just how well you love. We look at this over and over and over again. Jesus says it over and over and over again. What is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. He says the true test of spiritual maturity is how well you love. That's it. Now, does that mean learning is not important? No. It's absolutely important because the more you learn, hopefully, the better you love. But, Learning is not the end. It is the means to the end. And the end that it is the means to is love. Because we can become the most biblically literate church in the world and be doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons. And that's older brother syndrome. Love God. Love your neighbor and if we could if we could just make that the priority that we would be passionately in love with our heavenly father that we would be passionately involved with those that we know those like us those within the church family and that we would be passionately loving towards those outside the family because when he said love your neighbors as self and they asked who was my neighbor who was the neighbor it was an enemy <laughs> It was a Samaritan. That's the answer. How do we do that? I think the first thing is, we just got to start being more honest about our own imperfections. Because you see, when you focus on behavior, you become very image conscious. And then you spend all of your time keeping up your image. You want people to see you do all the good things and not see you do the bad things. And when you become image conscious, you become hypocritical. And I think one of the best places we could start is just being honest about our own imperfections. And all we are doing in that is just saying what the Bible already says is true. (laughs) None of us is perfect. we got to quit finding fault with people. And then I think another part of this is getting past the labels. Getting past the labels and get to know the person. We live in a culture and in a society that loves to categorize Just go and fill out any application. There are hundreds of boxes to check. Which are you? Liberal, conservative, married, single, divorced, atheist, Muslim, new ager, gay, straight, Asian, Hispanic, Caucasian, declined to state. Which, that's the one I always check. I just want to mess with their minds, you know? We have all kinds of categories. We have all kinds of labels that we put on people. We got labels we put on ourselves. And every time you put somebody in a category and you stereotype them, you kill the possibility of a relationship. Because you can't have a relationship with a label. You can't have a relationship with a category. Look at, what the, look at, look at this. Look at what the older brother says. When the father comes out and asks him to come, please, you know, come, come to the party. And here's what he says When this son of yours, he's got a label for him. He is no longer my brother. He is this son of yours. Yeah, it's it's like parents, you know, when the kid does something bad. You know what your son did? My son? I thought he was your son, you know. But that's what he's doing. He is giving a label. When that son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, by the way, nowhere in the story does it say that. Nowhere in the story does it say he squandered his money on prostitutes. That's the older brother's assumption. That is his preconception. That is his prejudice. He's already made up his mind about that son of yours. He's given him a label. And with the label came all these assumptions and prejudices. And truthfully, he really had no idea what his brother had been doing for the last number of years. He had no clue. So he just made it up. The best way, the best way to reach somebody with this message of grace, the best way to show people Jesus is just be a friend. Genuine friendship, not a project, a friend. And when you do, you discover the person behind the label. One of my favorite stories um, told by Tony Campolo, uh, he's recorded in a book of his called uh, The Kingdom of God is a Party. It's one of my favorite stories of all time. He talks about, because he, he travels and he speaks all over the place. And so he, um, he ended up finding himself in downtown Honolulu, because um, that's where he was speaking. But because of the time change, it's like 3 in the morning and he can't even sleep. So he says this, At 3.30 in the morning, I was wandering up and down the streets of Honolulu, looking for a place to get something to eat. Up a side street, I found a little place that was still open. I went in, took a seat at one of the stools of the counter, Waited to be served. This was one of those sleazy places that deserves the name Greasy Spoon. I mean, I did not even touch the menu. I was afraid that if I opened it, something gruesome would crawl out. But it was the only place I could find. The fat guy behind the counter came and asked, What do you want? I told him. I said, I want a cup of coffee and a donut. He poured a cup of coffee, wiped his grimy hand on his smudged apron, and then grabbed the donut off the shelf behind him. Now, I'm a realist. And I know that in the back room of that restaurant, donuts were probably dropped on the floor and kicked around. But when everything is out front where I could see it, I would really have appreciated it if he had at least used a pair of tongs and placed the donut on some wax paper. As I sat there munching on my donut and sipping my coffee at 3.30 in the morning, the door of the diner suddenly swung open. And to my discomfort, in marched eight or nine provocative and boisterous prostitutes. That was a small place. And they sat on either side of me. Their talk was loud and crude. I felt completely out of place and was just about to make my getaway when I overheard one of the women sitting next to me say, tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39. Her friend responded in a nasty tone. So what do you want from me? A birthday party? What do you want? You want me to get you a cake and sing happy birthday? Come on, said the woman sitting next to me. Why do you have to be so mean? I was just telling you, that's all. Why do you have to put me down? I was just telling you, it was my birthday. I don't want anything from you. I mean, why should you give me a birthday party? I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. Why should I have one now? When I heard that, I made a decision. And I sat and waited until the women had left. Then I called over the fat guy behind the counter and asked him, do they come in here every night? Yeah, he answered. The one right next to me, she does come in here. Does she come in here every night? Yeah, he said, that's Agnes. Yeah, she comes in here every night. Why do you want to know? Because... I heard her say that tomorrow's her birthday, I told him. What do you say you and I do something about that? What do you think of us throwing a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night? A cute smile slowly crossed his chubby cheeks, and he answered with measured delight. That's great. I like it. That's a great idea. Look, I told him, if it's okay with you, I'll get back here tomorrow morning about 2.30 and decorate the place. I'll even bring a birthday cake. No way, said Harry. That was his name. The birthday cake's my thing. I'll make the cake. At 2.30 the next morning, I was back at the diner. I picked up some crepe paper decorations at the store and made a sign out of big pieces of cardboard that read, Happy Birthday, Agnes. I decorated a diner from one end to the other and had that diner looking good. The women who did the cooking must have gotten the word out on the street because by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was in the place. (laughs) It was wall-to-wall prostitutes and me. At 3.30 on the dot, the door of the diner swung open, and in came Agnes and her friend. I had everybody ready. After all, I was kind of the MC of the affair. And when they came in, we all screamed, Happy Birthday! Never have I seen a person so flabbergasted, so stunned, so shaken. Her mouth fell open. Her legs, legs seemed to buckle a bit. Her friend grabbed her arm to steady her. And as she was led to sit in one of the stools along the counter, we all sang Happy Birthday to her. And as we came to the end of singing, happy birthday, dear Agnes, happy birthday to you, her eyes moistened. Then, when the birthday cake with all the candles carried out was carried out, she lost it and openly cried. Harry gray, roughly mumbled, blow out the candles, Agnes. Come on, blow out the candles. If you don't blow out the candles, I'm going to have to blow out the candles. And then after an endless few seconds, he did. <laughs> And he handed her a knife and told her, Cut the cake, Agnes. Yo, Agnes, I want some cake. Agnes looked down at the cake. Then without taking her eyes off it, she slowly and softly said, Look, Harry, if it, if it's, is if it all right with you if I, I, I mean, if it's okay, if you kind of, what I want to ask is, is it okay if I keep the cake a little while? It mean, I mean, it's, is it all right if we don't eat it right away? Harry shrugged and answered, Sure, it's okay. You want to keep the cake? Keep the cake. Take it home if you want. Can I? She said. Then looking at me, I just live down the street, a couple of doors. I want to take the cake home, okay? I'll be right back, honest. She got up the stool, picked up the cake, and carrying it like it was the holy grail, walked slowly to the door. As we all just stood there motionless, she left. Then when the door closed, there was a stunned silence in the place. Not knowing what else to do, I broke broke the silence by saying, What do you say We pray. Looking back on it, now it seems more than strange for a sociologist to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But then it just felt like the right thing to do. So I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her salvation. Prayed that her life would be changed. And that God would be good to her. And when I finished, Harry leaned over the counter with a trace of hostility in his voice, and he said, Hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? <laughs> and in one of those moments, when it was just the right words came, I answered, I belong to the church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> Harry waited a moment and then almost sneered. He answered, No, you don't. <laughs> There's no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. I'd join a church like that. Wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all love to join a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning? Well, that's the kind of church Jesus came to create. And I don't know where we got the other one that's so prim and proper. But anyone who reads the New Testament will discover a Jesus who loved to party with whores and all kinds of left out people. The publicans and sinners loved him because he partied with them. The lepers of society found in him someone who would even drink with him. And while we solemnly pious, piously could not relate to what he was about, those lonely people who usually didn't get invited to parties took looked to him with excitement. Our Jesus was and is the Lord of the party. Yeah. One of my favorite stories. But here's the deal: it is up to us to build bridges, not barriers. Building bridges. And to do that, we got to discover the person behind the label. Being, building genuine friendships, not a project. And and everybody knows the difference between the two. If you've ever had a friend in any kind of multi level marketing pro- program, you know what it is like to be prospected. <laughs> and you think you're a friend, and you find out you're a prospect. Jesus is looking for people who will be friends friends with those who are friendless. How do we do that? We sit down and talk with them, and we listen. We listen. And we listen to their hopes and their dreams and their worries and their fears. And maybe, just maybe, we will discover they are not that much different than you and me. Because they really aren't. Paul wrote it this way to the first Timothy. He said, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am. And am the worst. That's the Apostle Paul. He says, here is a saying that everybody ought to get under their belt. Jesus Christ died to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Not Paul is the worst. I am the worst. And when you do that, and you build those friendships, and you get to know people and build those kinds of relationships, and you begin to show them Jesus, and you begin to listen to their story, and you begin to share your story, you find out they're not all that different. And we've all got this hole in our heart for God. Paul went on. He says, God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience. I love that. Paul said, God was so merciful to me. Just so he could use me as the prime example of someone that he had to have a lot of patience for. And that's my story. Chances are it's your story too. C.S. Lewis writes about this whole idea of loving the sinner and and hating the sin. And he said, for years I thought that was just theological hair-splitting. You know, I, I just thought, you know, that, come on, that's just that's all wordplay. But he said, I began to discover there is someone that I love, even though I don't approve of everything he does. There is someone I accept, even though his thoughts and his actions revolt me sometimes. There is someone I love, even though he hurts the ones I love the most. That person is me. In fact, the very reason I hate the things that I, is that I love the man. I am sorry to find that he is the sort of person who did those kinds of things. If I can love myself without approving of all I do, I can also love others without approving all they do. And that's the same thing that Paul was talking about. The bottom line is this. We need to fully embrace grace so that we can fully extend grace. Grace has to be more than a theological concept. It has to be more than the name of a church plastered on the side of the building. It has to be our lives because the thing that the older brother couldn't understand is that the father loved them both equally. They were both equally in need of grace. He loved, he, and loving the younger brother didn't mean he loved the older brother any less. In fact, he said, My son, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. You see, the inheritance was not earned. Inheritances are never earned. They are given. They are given. And that's what he's trying to get across. There is nothing fair about grace. Nothing fair. Except that it is freely distributed to everyone. And the Father's plea is simply this. Don't you get it? And I think it is the Father's plea to us this morning. Don't you get it? Don't you Get it? He was constantly talking to the Pharisees and saying, don't you get it? And it's real easy for us to look at other people and say they are so Pharisaical and every time you do that, (laughs) it's you. Don't you get it? He says, we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And to fully embrace grace We have to extend it. And Christians of all people ought to be, ought to be the ones who can love unconditionally because we have had a taste of it in what Christ did for us. Sheldon Van Auken, last quotation. The best argument for Christianity is Christians. Their joy, their certainty, their completeness... The strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians. When they are somber and joyless, when they are self-righteous and smug, when they are narrow and repressive, then Christianity dies a thousand deaths. And that's the message of this parable. That's what Jesus is saying. It's all an inheritance. It's all a gift. 1 John, how great Is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God? It is all about His love. It's all about His grace that we be called this child. And He says, that is what we are. And having experienced such a powerful, powerful thing as grace, how can we not extend it to others? What's really, really interesting about this story, and I don't know if you caught it, is it doesn't have an ending. Did you notice that? It doesn't have an ending. There's no, and they all lived happily ever after. There's no idea. What did the older brother do? Did he go to the party or did he not? Now, I don't think it's because Jesus couldn't come up with a good ending for the story. I think it's because it's a story that has to be completed by every one of us. Every one of us have to finish that story. Every one of us have to decide, are we going to get in on the party? Are we going to stand outside with our arms folded, smug and self-righteous, and miss what God is doing in this world. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.